You actually have to be on cocaine to be on this podcast. What's up, everybody? You're listening to yet another edition of Cocaine Willie. I am your commissioner, Bob Trollsby, and as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, the good chef, Andre Napier, and Fireball Matt Marchespini. Tonight, we are going to preview part two of a home-and-home series between the Kansas State Wildcats and 100-plus-year-old Big 8 rivals, the Missouri Tigers. And you're you're going to be joined by a familiar face tonight, for those of you who are who are K-State fans and and more more specifically fans of k-state podcasts so you know him as part one of two of of the uh, aggieville alley cats podcast uh but someone you know you may not know him as a an mu expert the mizzou expert ace edwards from the aggieville alley cats is joining us tonight ace i i have to ask you when you started aggieville alley cats did you ever think you'd see a day where you were going to be pegged as the mizzou expert on a k-state podcast uh, when it wasn't my own, the answer is no. Um, I, no, honestly. Um, then again, I, I think that's a it's a very very small Venn diagram of people who both enjoy K State and MU. But you know, I'm I'm happy to do it. It's a uh, my childhood team versus my alma mater. It was really excited that I was a uh, was there last year, and uh, I get to be there again. I'm actually going to going up to Columbia with Connor and my parents for my birthday. It was a birthday present for me. So uh, the only thing that would make it a better birthday present is if a uh, drink gets fired after the game. In which there's probably no possibility of considering he got oh, no. a two-year extension after uh, losing to Georgia by four points. So a man can dream. Really, really fantastic stuff there. Uh, I guess just first question from me though, too. Tell the people a little bit more about your history as a fan of Mizzou. Uh, and, and it sounds like obviously your childhood team, but how did that love for them or, or that fanhood for them develop? Was it was it gifted to you? Was it something you you became a fan of on your own accord? I, I just want to hear about your history as a Mizzou fan. Yeah, so uh, pretty much everyone before me on my mother's side went to MU. My mother ended up uh, dropping out, I think, after a year uh, to go to nursing school instead. But my aunt went to MU. My grandparents both grew up MU fans. So I sort of inherited the um, the fandom. And it's, a, it's actually a very funny story about sort of how my fandom developed because I didn't care about college football until I was like 12. So, you know, I, it was just sort of something that, oh, I like MU, um, which growing up in a KC, sometimes you're your, your definition of liking MU is just hating KU a whole lot. But yeah, it, it was sort of something I inherited from my mother, which is extra funny because of the two of us, I'm the more sensible of it. My mother is, if my mother had Twitter, she would be one of the most like MU doomer people on earth, which is so funny considering my mother's like generally optimistic outlook about everything in life. But I very much inherited it. So it's, it's, you know, it's just something that you end up having to, to sort of live with as, as a curse ever since, you know, especially they, um, you know, just simply passed on Josh Weipel, you know, 
I'm still mad about that, and I'll never stop being mad about that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, uh, let's get into uh, talking about Missouri a little bit. So um, their time in the SEC uh, has definitely had its ups and downs, to say the least. Um, they've lost four out of their last six bowl appearances since they've joined the SEC. One uh, uh, over seven win season um, since Gary Pinkle departed as head coach after the 2015 season. Um, that being said, I mean, the success on the field hasn't quite been there yet. They've recruited pretty well, um, especially a guy like wide receiver Luther Burden. Um, and they definitely have had some success from for, uh, from some of their former players in the NFL, like the Chiefs' Nick Bolton. So from what you can gather, what's the feeling around the fan base about the state of the program, especially under Drinkwitz? Well, the uh, the most important thing is with a lot of people or that the more optimistic people focus on is the recruiting aspect of it. Because you do get the commitment of the number one defensive end, who I think in some services is the number one player in the country in Williams Winery. Uh, but you also get players like Luther Burden to just drop on by and just a lot of different recruiting wins, not only against peer schools like Josh Manning last year, although that had some some sheboingery afoot, but you also get just more national recruiting wins. And I think that's sort of where the optimism begins with MU fans, specifically regarding the future. I also think that's kind of where it ends with MU regarding the future, because with all the talent that they've been able to collect, whether it be through the portal or whether it be just generally recruiting high, like high skill ceiling, like high school kids, it still hasn't been able to be put together. And a lot of that is due to, I'm, I'm going to be diplomatic here. Um, Eli Drinkowitz's failings as a coach, of which there are many. So you bring up the you bring up the talent that they've acquired and how they're not putting it together, but this year's team and specifically they're two and I mean we can all so you, you can get there many different ways, but they are 2-0, and and Kansas State's heading into their house. What on offense are they doing? You know, I mean, they got the a lot of the same faces that we saw in Manhattan last year, kind of. I mean, are they taking bigger roles on offense? What are they doing? Because it seems like it's almost the exact same offense as last year for Missouri. What are they doing this year that we can expect differently? Um, it's funny that you mentioned that it's the exact same offense because it's the exact same offense. Despite the fact that they hired a new offensive coordinator, who, by the way, while he was at Fresno State, was there are 131 FBS schools. He was 126th in explosiveness. I'm just going to leave that one there and take a sip. But it's the it's basically the exact same offense. The only difference is you don't have Dominic Lovett. He ended up transferring to Georgia. So instead, you get a Theo Weiss, who is not a bad receiver, but he's not Dominic Lovett. And you get the same general philosophies of you run a lot of wide zone stuff. You run a lot of motion. You run a lot of gadget plays to Luther Burden, who is developing a lot more than he was last year. Because last year he was a he was just an athlete who so happened to play an outside receiving position. 
Now he's developing into a little bit more of a gadget player. He's still not quite there as a truly refined receiver, but he's certainly making a lot of strides to be like, he's just leveraging his athleticism. Because, you know, if you get the ball to him on like a screen, a tap pass, a slant, or a go ball, which I just described his entire route tree up to this point, um, he can do a lot of damage, which, you know, it's just leveraging his athleticism. But in the in the running game, it's the same stuff. It's outside zone. It's trying to be a Shanahan system without understanding what makes the Shanahan system, you know, good. But it the running backs aren't bad. I still haven't forgiven Nathaniel Pete last year for fumbling on the one guard line against Auburn and costing them the game. Still haven't forgiven him for that. But Cody Schrader's not a bad back. Nathaniel Pete's not a bad back. It a lot of the team is very similar to last year. Just replaced Dominic Lovett with Theo Weiss. But it's still... Listen, Eli Drinkwood still has a play calling sheet. And I thought they took that away from him. That was like my one hope for this entire season. And I saw him with the play calling sheet against Middle Tennessee. And I didn't like it very much. So thinking about the offense, I think I've got two two questions here. The first one... Brady Cook was the guy last year in the matchup against K-State. Brady Cook was the guy for most of the season. And statistically, when you look at it at face value, he didn't have a horrible season when you look at like his passing yards, right? 2,700 passing yards last season. That's, that's very respectable for a quarterback in the SEC. But when you look at his touchdown interception ratio, it was 14 to 7. That's that's really, really terrible. Uh, a 2 to 1 ratio in, in touchdowns and interceptions is not good. So tell us what version of Brady cook should we expect to see on Saturday, knowing that the first two matchups were kind of okay. Um, he had, uh, what was it? 204 yards last week uh, with two touchdowns, but what are you expecting out of him on, on Saturday in this matchup? Will we see more of the same from last season and how K state was able to drop uh, the defense to, to match up well with him schematically, or do you think we'll see more of the like 200 to 300 yard type of game out of Brady cook? Well, something I'll say about Brady Cook is that he's nowhere near as bad as MU fans make him out to be. He is a perfectly serviceable SEC Power 5 quarterback. It's just that MU fans have ridiculous expectations for no good reason. But in terms of what I would personally expect from Brady Cook, I, I expect him to be fine. I expect him to be somewhat similar to what he's been his basically his entire career which is a solid power five quarterback who is absolutely God awful at dealing with pressure. And that was the big story last year. K-State got a lot of pressure on him because they kept trying to speed him up by sending a lot of blitzes. And that led to a lot of mistake. And eventually Jack Abraham entering the game, throwing two passes, one of which was a pick. Um, but a lot of what Brady cook does, especially this season, he seems to have tried to slow himself down a little bit. And by that, I mean, he's not scrambling as often, which that's a massive mistake for his game because he's not a fast enough processor yet to really justify not using his legs as often. When he and, was also the leading rusher in the matchup last year against K-State. Yeah, which is, I don't know why you would just simply take that away from him. But yeah, Brady Cook is a generally solid quarterback who doesn't like pressure. Like he's... Probably looking at K-State's schedule, he's probably in the top half, maybe pressing for top quarter 
of the quarterbacks that K-State will see this year, but he's fine. Just fine. He's fine. Everybody's fine. He's fine. <laughs> um, you had mentioned rushing. Uh, I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit through that again. So Cody Schrader, he had 19 yards against K-State last year. Um, obviously, Nathaniel Pete was um, the main guy uh, last season in that game. Uh, but he is coming off a couple of good appearances. Uh, mid Middle Tennessee had 84 yards on the ground. South Dakota he had 138 yards on the ground. It seems like, I mean, not seems, K-State has shown in the past – two games that they have a great rush defense. Um, how well do you think K-State is going to contain the the rushing offense that Mizzou and Cody Schrader is going to bring on Saturday? Uh, very well. And the main reason why is just by virtue of how K-State's defense sort of operates and how MU likes to do their run game. I mentioned that they really like the sort of wide zone stuff. The biggest weakness with a lot of wide zone systems, especially if you're not putting in any counter punches, spoiler, he's not, uh, by him, I mean Eli Drinkowitz, is that the moment that you see a lineman moving laterally, you just have a linebacker shoot in behind any one of the interior guys and the play is screwed. And even Middle Tennessee and South Dakota sort of picked up on that a little while ago, which is why MU is only averaging 3.8 yards per carry. And a lot of their... You know, 48.7% of their running plays go to either the edge or off of the tackle. So nearly half of their plays are intentionally going in that wide zone area where athleticism matters most. And like our linebacking room is a room that's able to take advantage of that, not only because they're disciplined, but because Daniel Green for, you know, as many problems as his tendency to step up first can cause in the passing game it basically makes him a deleter in the outside zone game because the moment that he sees that I'm, I'm sorry, the play is screwed. If he guesses which side is correct, which he will like the play is screwed. Like they're not going to be able to gain anything, which is why even the running game last year in a game that, you know, it was raining for several hours. Like that was a game you had to rely on the running game. And they just knew that they couldn't do that. A part of that was Daniel green. A part of that was run support safeties which I don't think the run support of VJ Payne or Marquis Siegel is such a step down from Josh Hayes. Okay, I got to take a step away from this MU game real quick because I want to I want to pick your brain real quick, Ace. Okay. I listen to the Aggieville Alley Cats every episode, you know, religiously. It's one of my my few podcasts that I every time there's a new episode, I, I make it you know, that issue right there. To, to listen to it, that and the Cocaine Willie show. But you're a very analytical and mind, and your sports knowledge is kind of like, I would say, up there. What, what history do you have with, like, play calling, uh, film, you know, film, watching film, breaking down film, and just football in general? What, what, what history do you have with it that gives you this – Insider, like, that. Jeff, <laughs> you can't do this to us. Not again. Get it together. God damn it. I think you still got most of the question, Ace. So, yeah. Free to go for it. And I'll, I'll mute him in case he comes back prematurely. <laughs> it, it's a question about background. So, 
It's it's a really good question. Um, obviously, I, I played high school football. I played middle school football. But before that point, I wasn't really into football. Like it took me really up until my junior year of high school to actually start like giving a shit about football, like at all, which is funny because I played it for like five years beforehand. But as for like what sort of got me motivated to, you know, start start thinking about football in a, in a certain way. Uh, it was actually after I stopped playing. <laughs> so uh, I, I may have shot myself in the foot, which I, I really couldn't afford to be doing as a 5'9", defensive tackle. But, um, like, what really got me into it was I just sort of started thinking about the game a lot more. I started thinking about it a little differently. Uh, a big part of that was watching people like Brett Coleman on YouTube. Samuel Gold also does some some awesome work. And a lot of them is sort of how I sort of started getting into it. And then after that, it was just a lot of, okay, well, I'm seeing a player do X, and this is like the result Y. So it's just a lot of looking at how things sort of develop. And it was, there's, this is actually a story I think I've said on Alley Cats before, but my junior year of college, I applied for the student assistant position at K-State and was basically told that I was the most football knowledgeable uh, candidate that applied. I only didn't get the job because I was too old. Uh, they wanted someone who was a freshman or a sophomore, but I'm not upset about that because that's actually kind of how the show got started. Um, we wanted a, we noticed that there were not a lot of shows who would sort of go into X's and O's, start talking about how, you know, like how certain play calling structures operate. Like there, there weren't many scouting reports that, that weren't behind a paywall. So we said, Hey, we're going to talk about K-State sports anyway. So we started a show, but yeah, my background really just comes from, you know, a lot of it being a hobby. I just kind of got interested in, in how things sort of work, which is if you, it, it leads to some pretty funny moments in the game. I've been told that I'm either the best person to watch a football game with or the worst person to watch a game with. And there's no in between. Um, you may have to ask Connor about that if he ever, if it comes on or you can just ask him on Twitter, but yeah, a lot of it just comes from personal interest after I was done playing. Am I good? I think you're good. It's like it. No. Okay. Now back to Missouri. I mean, these guys are probably, these guys got an outline. They didn't involve me in it. So, you know, I'm kind of just freelancing here, whatever. Don't, Play stupid. Anyway, I want to know about this Missouri defense. You know, I've heard a lot of good things about it. I don't know. They, they seem all right from what I've watched on film. And they have an absolutely electric corner. I think it's, what is it, Abrams? Cad? Kate, Chris Abrams Strain? Ab yeah. And he's a, he's a shutdown corner. Looks legit as hell. And I think their middle linebacker, he was there last year, Hopper, or he was a transfer. Hopper. From, yeah, he was a transfer from Florida. Florida. And he he's commanding this defense right now to this point versus, you know, lower-level schools, teams that we're familiar with, South Dakota. 
what are they bring? I'm going to ask you basically what I ask you about offense. What are they bringing differently this year that we're not not going to see that we didn't see last year? Well, they're more comfortable with the system. Uh, a lot of what Blake Baker wants to do, which complete aside about Blake Baker, I have no idea how he's not a head coach. He's either killed someone or done like he's committed some horrible, horrible crime. And everyone knows about it except for me. Uh, Cause there's no reason why he should have ever been a, a linebackers coach at LSU after leading top 10 defenses for like five years at two different schools. Uh, that's either here nor there, but a big part of what they're doing on defense is they're getting more familiar with the, with the scheme. So like on first down, they're basically hyper compacting their interior defensive line to where you have a nose tackle and two, three techniques. And their goal is to make sure that you cannot run up the middle so that we, they can leverage their linebackers athleticism. If you try to run to the outside while still keeping enough of the linebackers back to interrupt RPO windows, it's a very unique spin on uh, the Luke Fickles 335 that basically everyone in the Big 12 is using now because no one knows how to stop the damn spread. Um, but even outside of first down, they just do a lot of they, – they change looks on you, and I think that's the, the most important part. I, I think the best way to describe Blake Baker's defense is that the number one goal of the defense is to scare the shit out of you. Whether or not you need to be scared of the blitz or not, the number one goal is to make you so scared of that blitz, no matter, and you don't know where it's going to come from, that you start trying to speed yourself up, and that's what forces mistakes. That's what forces what could be an explosive play over the top to a three-yard checkdown because you think you're running, you think you have an easy outlet to the running back because they're blitzing, and he just does that in so many diff- different ways, like. It, Another way to describe it is if you think you know where the pressure is coming from, you're probably wrong. And that's just what he that's what he's been doing since um, his days at uh, Miami and Louisiana Tech. It's the same thing, you know, fool them looking into one direction and blitz the other or blitz that same way until they're so confused that they don't know what they're doing. And the terrifying thing is that the defense is getting faster at doing that. And even players that you're not used to like seeing in that role have evolved into that role. And that's what makes the defense so scary. The reason why they've given up uh, 19 and 10 points is because the offense, although if you look at the stats, they're like 42nd in time of possession. A lot of those are like you get one extended drive a game and then you just have a shit ton of just, uh, just vomiting all over themselves, like on the sidelines. And that just makes the defense tired. So like, a lot of it has an excuse. And uh, TLDR, <laughs> Blake Baker needs to be a head coach someday. Uh, maybe in the place of Eli Drinkwitz. That'd be nice. Uh, this might be my favorite episode so far this season. I'm just, I'm going to be honest there. Um, Darius Robinson is a guy, just, I looked at some of the names on defense. Some of these guys were around last year. Some of them weren't, but Darius Robinson's a guy who on the defensive line, he he currently leads the team with tackles at 10. Uh, Niles Gaddy, he's another guy on the defensive line who led the team in sacks uh, with two so far through through two games. 
And then Christian Williams is also on the defensive line, and he has the only forced fumble turnover situation uh, of the season so far for Mizzou. So by all accounts, it looks like they have a relatively strong defensive line. Uh, and those three guys specifically are, are names that, that I'm going to be looking for. But outside of those three guys, and, and I forget the name of the guy that you already mentioned, um, but what are some other names that we should expect to hear on Saturday? And, and how strong do you think – those other position groups are on defense when you, when you look at the matchup specifically against K-State. Yeah, I, I do. I do think that MU's defensive line top to bottom is really solid. Um, you have for, just by a snap count, uh, Jane Jernigan, Josh Landry and Christian Wilkins make up the interior. Uh, Johnny Walker and Darius Robinson, the edge players. All of those guys are perfectly fine. Christian Williams is a tree as a as a nose tackle. Like you just can't move him. Like he's probably not going to make any like splash plays because he's a nose tackle, but he you just can't move him. And that's why he's like pretty solid in run defense just because he's a damn tree stump that you can't move. Um you mentioned Darius Robinson. He's Really, really good run defender who needs work as a pass rusher, which is kind of why he's he's sort of a he's a tweener. He's a tweener player who'd probably play like five tech in the NFL. The linebacking room, uh, low key goes crazy. Um, Tyron Hopper, which like, I don't know how his PFF grade is so low. He has a fifty three point eight. There are very few times that I just will straight up disagree with a PFF grade. This is one of those times. Because Tyron Hopper and Chuck Hicks very well may be one of the best one-two linebacking duos in the country. Probably not number one, but almost certainly like top ten, maybe pushing an argument for top five. Tyron Hopper times every blitz perfectly. I don't know how he does it. He did the same thing last year, and honestly, it's really frustrating, I would imagine. I actually quite enjoy watching it when K-State's not playing them. I think it's funny. But uh, Chuck Hicks is... Arguably the better of the two, which is weird to say because of the athlete that Tyron Hopper is. And, you know, Chuck Hicks is just that, you know, sneaky, athletic uh, gym rat, first guy in, last guy out. Um, everyone knows what I'm saying here. But he's just this really tenacious defender who doesn't make any mistakes. And as, as like a true linebacker, that's sort of exactly what Blake Baker wants is a linebacker who isn't going to, he's going to play fast, but isn't going to play himself so fast that he's going to make a mistake. And Chuck Hicks just does exactly that. Um, the defensive back room is sort of give and take. Um, Cad, Chris Abrams drain has some really good splash plays. Same with uh, Ennis Rakestraw. They're kind of the same player. <laughs> um and that they both have the exact same tendencies of they're both like press corners who maybe lets the play come to them a little bit too much, but they're still going to be in decent enough positions. Um, I do think that if Jalen Carley's can't go, which I don't think he played last week, that is a massive weakness in the, the safety room. But outside of that, I the strongest room is almost certainly the linebackers weakest probably safeties if i had to say losing the mute button oh my god <laughs> um so something kind of interesting at least that we've been seeing this season um when it comes to mr drinkwitz um so 
he has yet to go forward on fourth down this season. I don't know. He's just seems like a, a weird kind of situation, but Howard? maybe, maybe I didn't put the words out there, but um, it does seem like uh, that those types of decisions have led to some points in the middle Tennessee game that made the game a lot closer than it probably should have been if he didn't go for fourth down. Mm-hmm. So I guess looking at it from your perspective, is it something where he doesn't want to put any plays on tape? Is it a refusal to trust your offense's ability to convert? What do you think is the deal with him not going for it on fourth down? See, I, I really, I, I know the actual like schematic answer. I know the like objectively correct answer, but Drinkwitz is a very strange man who apparently is waiting for his daughter to come of age for a quarterback. But I, it, I, I, he's not doing it because the offense, I don't think can convincingly do it. So like, if you have a situation where, you know, any other offense would like have a 60 to 70% chance of getting it. I'm not sure he trusts that 60 to 70% chance, whether it be because of his own play calling, which is the correct answer for why it would be that way. Or whether it's just like, he doesn't think the players can get in the right spot, which again is on him. But I just don't think that he has that level of, of trust in his offense when he can just ask the thicker kicker Harrison Mevis to go out there and just try for three, um, which normally is a solid play. He's a really good kicker. He's been a little inconsistent at the beginning of this season. But, you know, it. I, I just don't think he trusts the offense to really go for it in those situations, especially which, you know, the – inverse side of that coin is maybe he trusts the defense a lot more which i'm just saying if he trusts the unit that he's not in charge of more which he should but the 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 best explanation that i can come up with is the team's just not the team's play calling structure is just not built for those situations what is okay so I mean, that question is perfect by Matt because it 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 kind of puts Eli on this, this Thank spot you where... Much. Thank you very yeah, much, I mean, by the way. That's a perfect you're question. The smartest, you're the smartest man I know. But it puts him in a situation where it doesn't seem like he's going all out for it because you laid it out there perfectly where he trusts his defense more, maybe, and he's in charge of the offense. But this game, it's not win because, like, at the beginning, he's... Got the extension. Maybe I'm wrong. This. Do you think there's a must win? Do you think it is? And what does the loss mean? What is the win here for Eli Drinkwitz's team? Do you think this is a a must win game? No, I got, I got it, I got it, I got the question. Um, it's always just when he starts speaking too. That's the worst part. Is that he? I, I guess uh, his internet just wants him to be a, a silent participant here. But uh, in terms of what a win means um, for the fan base, it would mean a lot because, you know, MU fans are, I, I am one of them. However, I am not afraid to dunk on them. They are a little bit delusional at times. And by at times, I mean all the time, but in terms of what it means for Eli Drinkowitz, you mentioned it earlier, or maybe it was before the show that it, like he has a two year extension and a big reason why he got that extension is because he's such a damn good recruiter. 
which that's a completely different issue. I have no idea how he recruits so well, because for all intents and purposes, it shouldn't happen because he still looks like it. Like he somehow looks like a 35 year old kid who still receives swirlies from 13 year olds, but it just doesn't, I don't think, I think the seat will get slightly warmer and I think the fan base will get even more vitriolic towards him, which if you pay attention, like there's a lot more vitriol towards drink than there ever was during like Odom, for example. And Odom was known as this perfectly fine, inoffensive coach who, you know, would win you a consistent like seven to eight games a year. And this was after Whitebull left. Um, if you wanted a 45-minute rant, I could talk about MU and Josh Weipel's relationship, but I don't think you want that. Um, but I don't think a loss, I don't think a loss ultimately costs Strink his job as much as I would like it to. I do think that it puts a massive damper on a se- on the season and sort of sets them up for, you know, it, it basically it sets them up for more pain which has been basically the entire drink with era outside of recruiting. I, that brings me to a question that popped into my head. What do you see as Mizzou's realistic ceiling in the SEC, knowing that even when they were in the Big 12 and in the Big 8, they have not won a conference championship since 1969, and then prior to that, they haven't won an outright conference championship since 1945. So what would you say realistically is their ceiling in the SEC – knowing that the landscape's changing even more next season and you've got two very, very good caliber programs in Texas and Oklahoma joining that conference who recruit better than Missouri does generally and a Texas team that, are they back? I don't know. We don't know, but they might be. (laughs) It'll be the most Texas thing for them to lose to Wyoming this week. Um, (laughs) But I I think that MU ceiling, we've already seen the ceiling and it was like 10 and two, 10 and three. That was with the Drew Locke, Josh Weipel years. And I think that they can reach that ceiling again. I don't think they're ever going to be the team to win the SEC, barring like an absolutely magical year, or if they hit like an absolute home run of a head coaching hire, which, you know, they could. But I I sort of see MU ceiling as a like a perennially respectable sometimes double digit win team who is at least making pushes in their division of the sec only to inevitably be smoked by you know alabama or georgia as god intended but it's there's no reason that they can't reach that ceiling especially with how much of a recruiting hotbed missouri specifically has become Because in recent years, Missouri already was producing some high-level talent before. But it seems like more and more, they're sort of developing this. They're they're developing more higher-level talent. It's more four- and five-star guys like Williams, Winnery, and uh, Luther Burden. But that being said, I don't see them as a team that can really break that conference, you know, that not winning a conference outright streak anytime soon especially not with Drinkowitz because it would take an absolute home run of a hire. And as much as I love Blake Baker, he probably wouldn't be that guy. Um, And there's like a handful of people that I think would a take the job and b like fit well in the culture with MU. 
Um, I keep seeing Katelniki, the KU offensive coordinator, as a name that could go to MU, which would be very funny, and I would actually like that a lot because I could actually start enjoying Katelniki's offenses again. But I just don't think he'd be like the home run hire. And the problem is that all the home run hires – oh, God, I just imagined a world where MU hires Jimbo Fisher. Oh, God. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Oh. Also, shameless plug for for your video that you did about Katelniki and and comparing the fact that Jalen Daniels and Jason Bean are exactly the same quarterback, which was incredibly well done on your part. I do have one extra question. What was the thought process in hiring Eli Drinkwitz to begin with, knowing that he only had one season of success at App State, where he won what he went what twelve and one after their bowl game, and he had never been a head coach prior to that. He inherited the entire team from Scott Satterfield, who's now at Cincinnati and did not do great at Louisville. Um, I'm just curious, what was, what was the reasoning behind that? And, and when they did kind of the PR push for why they hired this guy, was it just based on that one season or were there some skeptics like you from the beginning that were like, this seems a little suspect to hire a guy really with just one year of, of good track record as a head coach. I remember the rumors swirling around at the time was that Drinkwitz was always responsible for the recruiting at App State while he was there, which tracks. Um, But outside of that, there's always been, outside of Kansas City media, there's been a lot of of skepticism about Eli Drinkwitz. I think in his first year, there was a degree of optimism coming off of a lot of years of just being like, okay, with Barry Odom and then like six months of Steve Wilkes as like an interim guy who actually didn't do too poorly, but I, I, I don't know. Like I, I can't think of a single reason that you could like justify making that hire in that specific time, unless they really truly believed that recruiting was the only thing that MU was missing, which if Josh Weipel was still the offensive coordinator, you'd probably be right. But it, it that's just not the reality of the situation. So I I never got it. I, I That's what I would say is that I straight up never understood the hire. Then again, I also never really tried to because at that point I was I was already sort of devoted to, to K-State. Um, and they had gone through their own hiring cycle that was infinitely more successful outside of a year that doesn't count. But, you know, it. I, I can't justify it. And I would love to meet someone who could that isn't an insane person. And we're back. <laughs> we never left. Haste. That's great. What's going on? We need them to do what they want they're gonna do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, they're <laughs> Am I muted or not? It's over. Am I muted or what? <laughs> you're you're not muted. You're just really you're really just cutting out. 
You're really just cutting out, man. We got some editing tonight, don't we? <laughs> the best part is on the video feed. This is not going to get cut. No. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, you want to go ahead and ask? I Jeff would love this question. And Chef is back the moment his question is done. I hate it. I literally hate this. this is, like we've never left. This is nightmare fuel. Oh my god. I'm asking Chef's question, right? Yeah. My lord. Well, uh anyway, okay. So if we fast forward to Saturday at whatever, three PM and Missouri has won the game, what is the game plan that they have done to make that happen? They turn it into a fucking rock fight. Like yeah. they, they literally turned it into an Iowa game. That is the only recipe for, for winning for MU. And honestly, they have the defense with which to do it. And I think that is probably the most frustrating part. Um, if MU wins this game, they turned it into a defensive struggle where the only plays that are allowed to happen is like one go ball to Luther Burden and then like three slants by RJ slash Phil. That is like the only way that they can really win this game because their offense isn't going to outscore anybody without a lot of help. I mean, they couldn't do it against an FCS team and Middle Tennessee State. Like, yeah, sure, they put up 35 against South Dakota. The first the first half of that game sucked, by the way. Um, then Middle Tennessee, they only end up beating by four. So I don't have any confidence in them to outscore anyone. The only time that they're going to win any games this year is on the back of a stellar defensive performance. So if they end up, if they end up, you know, leaving the stadium that day, if they end up leaving Fro Field with um with a victory it's because they just straight up turned it into a cane versus Abel bashing each other with like five pound rocks. So with that, what is your final score prediction for Saturday? See, I don't see it turning into a rock fight. I do think that MU has a lot of weaknesses in the secondary. And I do think that while their defense is pretty good, I don't think that their offense is going to be able to keep the defense fresh no matter how often they sort of refresh their players. I mentioned their top two linebackers. Outside of the top two linebackers, there's a massive dip in quality, in quality of play. So I'm honestly going to go with a 27-13 Cats victory. And the main reason I say that is because I don't think that Eli Drinkowitz can maintain a possession for very long. And I do think that I do think that Luther Burden probably does end up getting one or two of his, just because he is that plus athlete. And while I do think that Jacob Parrish is also a really damn good athlete who's probably just going to be assigned Luther Burden duty, um, I do think that Burden's gonna just be able to get his. That being said, I think that that's really the only recipe for MU's offense to have success just purely schematically. And I think the number one way to beat K-State is explosive plays. And they haven't proven the ability to commit and do a lot of the explosiveness that 
is required to beat a defensive team like K-State. Well, like you mentioned earlier, I, I wouldn't trust anybody else's perspective on this other than you knowing that that Venn diagram of K-State and Mizzou fans is very, very small. And nobody really schematically probably knows both teams as well as you do. So I appreciate that sentiment. Ace, it was awesome to have you on tonight. Uh, we will also, for those of us who are, or for those of you who are listening uh, to this episode, listen in to our episode later this week. We're going to have Ace join us for some guys talking ball uh, on our predictions and weekly locks episode. But uh, Ace, go ahead and, and plug your stuff, plug the plug the Aggieville Alley Cats, and uh, let the people know where they can find you. So I am at acedwards00 on Twitter. I am one half of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast right alongside my wonderful co-host and co-owner. That would be Connor Balthazar. And we just cover all things K-State sports, whether it be football or non-rev sports, regardless of how sometimes the non-rev sports make us sad. But, you know, the number one thing that we do is we try to break down, at least on the football front, we always try to break down and give as many people the scouting report as possible. And if you want to follow us, we also on Twitter or threads or basically everything, we also post a lot of really, really bad or really, really good memes. It's a matter of perspective on uh, Aggieville ACATS on just about everything. If uh, Bob Trolls, we mentioned earlier that the I did make a few videos, um, not only about Jalen Daniels, Jason Bean, how they both sort of benefit from Andy Katalniki, but also a video about Will Howard, how he sort of rose to prominence at K-State. I also did a video that ended up being wrong about a few starters, but talking about one thing each K-State starter brings to the season. So if you want to check all those out, it's Aggieville Alley Cats on YouTube. Aggieville Alley Cats is the podcast. You can find that anywhere you get your podcasts. But uh, most importantly, just thank you. Thanks to the guys at Cocaine Willie for having me on this episode. It was a it was a massive blast. Um, it was fun getting to hear two out of the three people's questions on here. And then uh, the fumble recovery by two of the other people. It was awesome. But uh, seriously, I just really appreciate uh, Matt, Bob, Chef. Thank you all for for having me on. That is the one benefit of having a little bit of live radio experience is learning that you need to fill dead airspace at some point. And for those of you who want a link to his stuff uh, or to the Aggieville Alley Cats, the, those videos that he mentioned with Will Howard and Katelniki, I will link to that in the uh, in the YouTube feed as well um, and, and tag the Aggieville Alley Cats channel. So we'll get that Venn diagram going as well to continue using that metaphor. But uh, guys, anything else before we uh, before we do our quick little outro here? Chef. Love you, boys. Love you, boys. Can you uh, just give us a sentence? Just one sentence. Testing. Testing. Test, test. K-State by 90. Was there a subject and a predicate to that? <laughs> oh, I'm not, I'm not good enough with that. Big words. I don't know what any of that means. Give us the outro. Cool. Oh, baby. Oh, my God. <laughs> For all of us here at Cocaine Willie, thank you for listening to the show on your podcast feeds or watching us on YouTube. Do us a favor. If you're listening on Apple or Spotify podcast, leave us a five-star rating. And if you're watching on YouTube, give us a like on the video and also follow and subscribe to the Aggieville Alley Cats on YouTube as well. Uh, and all the podcast feeds and everywhere you can get your podcasts. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube at Cocaine Willie or follow us individually. I am at Bob Trollsby. 
Chef is at Chef Andre Napier, and Fireball Matt is at Matt Marchesini. Chef, if you can. <laughs> Cocaine sells the drug, man. Damn we are it. all coke and no joke. Wildcat country. Let's rock. Let's rock. <laughs> Matt, you're on mute. Son of a bitch. I had a fucking good thing to say, too. Damn it. <laughs> you can also find Chef at, at Comcast Support. <laughs> Fuck. Let's try it.